Good morning, everyone. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and study. We invite you here to our hearts, our minds, and we pray that our, our vision will be clear to see you today. Lead in our discussions, and may you be glorified. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And um, we are doing the first lesson in our new quarterly, Redemption in Romans, Lesson uh, 1. It's Paul in Rome. Before we get started, I want to follow up on a clarification from last week. As you remember, I was discussing Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and I suggested that the war uh, was from the Greek word polemo, from which we get politics, and Karen and Max um, were kind enough to suggest that word is not from where we get politics, and in fact, it's not where we get politics. We get the word polemo, uh, excuse me, uh, polemics from that word, and um, polemic, and here's the definition of a polemic. An aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another, the art or practice of disputation or controversy. Sounds like politics. <laughs> I was close. Okay. So, so the war in heaven, again, though, was, a, was not a physical war over might. It was a war over ideas and concepts uh, centering on God's character. Let's start with the introduction of the study guide. The second paragraph, uh, and it's actually speaking of Martin Luther here. It says, no matter his works and mortifications, however, the monk never sensed acceptance with God, never believed that he was good enough to be saved. His personal despair was so great that it was destroying his, him mentally and physically because believing in the reality of God's wrath, he feared the prospect of ever having to face it. Any thoughts about that? What's, what's the next sentence? The next sentence, after all, who wouldn't? After all, who wouldn't? Yes, we want to answer that question as well. Do you think there's a, a connection in believing in a wrathful God and not having peace? Yes. I want you to imagine you're sick with tuberculosis and you're working really, really hard to get well. You're working not to have fever and you're working not to cough and you're working and not to be fatigued. But no matter how hard you work, as time goes by, you're getting worse. And your symptoms are getting worse, and you're becoming emaciated, and you're starting to cough up blood. And now that you, and now you believe, very soon a, a doctor is going to come to examine you. And if he finds any symptoms at all, he's going to have you tortured by peeling your flesh off and then kill you. Would you have peace? Well, if we believe that about God, how can we have peace? Did Martin Luther understand God's wrath, or did he think of it much like this? And the lesson asks, who wouldn't? Um, we are all familiar with Romans chapter 1, where Paul says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on to describe in verse 24, 26, and 28 that God's wrath is letting people go. We're familiar with that text. Where do you think Paul got that idea? From Isaiah. From the Old Testament. And I thought maybe we should look at some Old Testament verses today. Look at see what, what Moses and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea uh, say about God's anger and wrath. And I'll just read some verses where you can write these down. Uh, we'll start with Deuteronomy 32 and go to Deuteronomy 31 and then Jeremiah 21 and Jeremiah 25 and Ezekiel 21 and, and Hosea chapter 5. I just want you to see a theme through scripture here about this. These are all in the notes, yes. All in the notes. Notes will be available online. Okay, this is uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting 29 and 30. 
excuse me, 22 and 23. My anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. I will reach to the world below and consume the roots in the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. They fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and ten thousand by only two? The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. Deuteronomy 31.17 When that happens, I will become angry with them. I will abandon them. And they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. Or Jeremiah 21, uh, 5, it says, I will fight against, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger and my wrath and my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. People and animals alike will die of terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or by disease. It will be given over to the king of Babylon and he will burn it to the ground. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jeremiah 25, 38, the Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that lives, that leaves its cave. The horrors of war and the Lord's fierce anger have turned the country into a desert. Are we seeing a theme here? Anger and abandonment, wrath and abandonment. Let's go on. Ezekiel 21, 31. You will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire and I will hand you over to brutal men, experts in destruction. Or Hosea 5, 14 and 15. I will attack the people of Israel with, uh, and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and, and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. What do you all think about these texts? Yeah. You've got abandonment for Israel, but you don't have abandonment for the enemies of Israel that God punishes. Um, we don't? What you have is the interference, uh, the effort for God to protect his people, which requires God to act in a way that he would never act against Israel. Well, uh, who are God's people on earth? <laughs> who are God's children? All of us. Are we all his children, or is he a respecter of persons? There is neither male nor female, Greek nor, nor, nor Jew, slave or free. But you've, got, you've got, a, but you've got a situation in the Old Testament in which the survival of the plan of salvation is at stake. Ah. And God must protect his people. The Exodus is an example. War is over in terms of God's plan for his people and for the earth. I, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with you completely. Let's see if we can't break that down a little further. When he was dealing with, uh, with Pharaoh, was he dealing with Pharaoh because he didn't care about Pharaoh? Or was he actually trying to reach him? Obviously to reach him. And in fact, Ellen White says that more uh, truth was given to that ancient ruler than any other ancient ruler uh, to Pharaoh. And how was Pharaoh? And you know, the scripture says in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was hardened in that neutral way. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart and it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. All three ways. How do we understand that? The thing is that in the Psalms particularly, the prayer of the Psalms is always that God's judgments would come because the vulnerable, the poor, and the people of God are being beaten 
by the forces of evil in the world. The forces of evil manifest themselves through individuals. And for God to protect his people, there has to be a certain amount of, I'm not going to use the word wrath and anger because I don't think God gets angry with people in that sense. But there has to be a certain amount of God's uh, activity which can appear to be very punitive to people who are on the wrong side. I like where you're going. Let's see if we can't, t- can't, can't take a little bit larger view and, and ask a few questions. Once um, mankind fell into sin, once Adam sinned at Eden, was it possible for the human race to be saved without Jesus Christ coming and completing his mission? However we describe his mission, could humanity be saved without Christ appearing? And in, in Genesis, even in chapter 3, did God, speaking to the serpent, announce that a Messiah was promised? That would crush the serpent's head and he would bruise the, the seed of the woman's heel, right? Did Satan then know that his hold was not secure on earth? Do you think when he heard the news that a Messiah was coming, that he simply sat back, kicked up in his lounge chair, uh, or did he set about trying to obstruct the coming of the Messiah? Okay, so do we find in the Old Testament scriptures this controversy going on? We see in the book of Job, get a little, little pull behind the scene there, and in the book of Job, when God removes a restraining hand, a hedge of protection around the book around Job, where did destruction come from? Did it come from God? But wait, when the servants came, when the servants came to report what had happened to Job, what did they say? The fire of God fell. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, it says, speaking at the end of time, we're going to come back in a minute to talk about the Old Testament, but uh, 7, 1 through 3, it says, an angel from the east came to the four angels holding the four winds of strife telling them to hold, hold, hold until the people of God are sealed in their forehead. Now, the, four, the angels holding the four winds are described as having a power to do something. What's, what power are they described having? A power to destroy the, the land and the sea. But what are they actually doing? Holding. So what is their power? Would their power be to let go what they're holding? Yes. Just like you see in the book of Job. Okay, the angels are restraining satanic forces. And so the angels come hold, 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 uh, and, then, and, and then when the angels stop holding, we see destruction happening. So in the Old Testament, what, when we see God acting, are we seeing God acting to punish sin, or are we seeing God acting to keep open the channel for the Messiah to come? Now, if you believe in God acts to punish sin, do you believe he punishes sin before judgment? No, no, I've got to sin punish. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying that, yeah, yeah. So I, I do see God acting very much in the Old Testament. But is his actions an expression of wrath and anger, or is it an expression of love and mercy to save and to keep open the channel for the Messiah? Well, I would agree with that. But let me give a different example of the one you've given in the past. Because I think we're on the same wavelength, but I made one a little bit different focus. I've got four children. The oldest one is a drug addict and an alcoholic. The family is coming unglued because of her presence. I tell her she has to leave, which I know may destroy her. I'm doing it not because I'm punishing her, or because I'm upset with angry at her, although in a way I probably am as a human being. I'm doing it to protect the family, which is exactly what I think we're talking about in the Old Testament. 
I like it. I understand completely. I, I think that's I think that's well said. Let, let's go on and see if we can't flush this out further because there's a lot more evidence we have in the notes and in the lesson today. Next, a couple of paragraphs. It says, um, then one day. Through his study of the Bible, a text jumped out at him that changed not only his life, but the history of the world. The just shall live by faith. His eyes had been opened. His acceptance with God was now based not on his works, not on his bodily mortifications, not on his deeds, but on the merits of Christ. Never again would he be open to the delusion of a theology that placed the hope of salvation in anything other than the righteousness of Christ given to the believer through faith alone. As you hear these paragraphs... What, what comes to your mind when you hear this phrase that says, his acceptance with God? What, what kind of things are connoted by that phrase, his acceptance with God? It says, his eyes have been opened, his acceptance with God was not based on his works and his bodily mortification and his deeds and his merits of Christ, so forth. Do you hear the connotation in any way, or is it just me that, that misreads this? But do you hear any connotation that, that could sound like, well, God is unaccepting? Or is it just me? Do you feel anything like something has to be done to get God to be accepting? Yeah. When it uses words like that? Do you, do you get that feeling or not? No? Okay. All right. Because I, I want to clarify. Yes. You've got to repent to have God be accepting. You've got to repent to have God be accepting. Um, and, and I want to flush that out. Why? What is, it that, what is it that makes one acceptable to God? Nothing we can do. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Yes? That paragraph begins with, His eyes had been opened. Martin Luther's, yes. Who did that work? Who opened his eyes? Who opened his eyes? I like it. Who came? Who, who did the first work? Who? I mean, it's God. We just accept. Can we have our eyes open without the Holy Spirit working, right? Yeah. So the question, what is it that makes us acceptable with God? There are different ideas out there. Yes. No? Okay. God's love for us. Well, let me put it this way. When God looks down upon earth and sees humanity and sin, what is it God wants? What's he desiring? Healing, reconciliation. Um, what is it that God cannot accept? He cannot accept the end of individual that having the free choice says, "I don't want." It. Uh, can God accept, or can God accept His children in sin? Pardon? In sin. In other words, can he, he look at us in sin and say, that's acceptable to me? Yeah. Um, and why can't he accept it? Because sin is lawlessness, being outside of the law of, which is the template for life. And so if he accepts us in sin, what's the scripture say? We are dead in our trespass and sin. This is terminal. We can't survive. We can't live. He loves us. He can't accept us dying. Can a parent, the example given just a moment ago, accept a child who is continuing to destroy themselves, not love the child, but accept them in that circumstance? Does the parent move to, to do everything they can to remove them from that circumstance? To see my child dying is unacceptable to me. 
Isn't that right? Yeah. If your child was and tied a plastic bag over their head and you saw it, could you accept that or would that be unacceptable? Well, this is our condition. We are out of harmony with the very basis of God's kingdom. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. The very elements upon which life is constructed to operate don't naturally reside in us anymore. God said, that's unacceptable. I'm going to lose my children. Now, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, they've offended me. I'm offended. And until something's done to um, uh, deal with my anger and wrath, I, I, I can't accept that. That's another way to look at it. The lesson said, the righteousness of Christ alone, given to the believer through faith. How is this righteousness of Christ given? It says through faith. But what does that mean? Is it given? My question, is it given? When we, when we have faith, is the righteousness then given to record books in heaven? Or is the righteousness given actually into the believer? In other words, when we open our hearts to trust in God, does it, is there an angelic accountant making a notation in the record books of heaven checking off that we are now righteous? Or is there something that actually transpires within the heart and mind of the believer? As you know, there's a member of our class right now struggling with cancer, and there is nothing he can do by force of willpower to resolve that cancer. But what if he goes to a doctor, and after the doctor reviews the medical records, the biopsies, the CTs, the MRIs, and sees the extent of this cancer, and the doctor says, do you trust me? If you trust me, I will save you. Isn't that what God is saying to us? Do you trust me? If you trust me, I'll save you. And our class member places his trust in the doctor, and then the doctor goes over to the medical records, removes all record of disease, and writes a notation. Dennis is now recognized and accounted to be cancer-free. Would that help our friend? No. What about if instead they went, he went to Dennis and intervened in him in such a way that the cancer went into remission? The records would show the cancer. The records would show the intervention in Dennis. And the records would show he's now cancer-free. What about the idea that when we accept Christ, it's a heavenly record adjustment system? Am I just making that up or have you heard that? So how is it that the merits of Christ save us, heal us, make us righteous? How does that happen? Well, this is out of um, TSB 62. It says, remember your character is is being daguerreotyped. Anybody know what a daguerreotype is? A photograph, a 19th century photograph. Your character is being daguerreotyped, photographed by the great master artist in the heavenly record books, or the books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern, Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Some very... Uh, powerful metaphorical language. Behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me. Or this is out of uh, Testimonies to Ministers, volume, uh, the Testimonies to Ministers, page 429. Every passing hour of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in careless 
in carelessness and self-pleasing as if of no value are deciding our everlasting destinies. The words we utter today will go on echoing when time shall be no more. The deeds done today, the de- notice that the deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven. Listen to this. Just as the features are transferred by the artist onto the polished plate. What's being transferred? They will determine our destiny uh, for eternity, for bliss or eternal loss and agonizing remorse. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes. What is it that's been recorded in heaven? And what's determining character? Thus, Scripture teaches that we are reborn, renewed, recreated in the inner man, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, law written on the heart and mind, have the mind of Christ, the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. The whole teaching of Scripture is that when we come to trust Him, something happens in the believer. So what makes us acceptable with God? And this is out of Christ's Optic Lessons, page 311. Woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in His humanity wrought out a perfect character. What did Christ do? He paid a legal penalty. He wrought out. He actually developed something. He built something in a human brain. It says in James chapter 1, humanity, uh, divinity cannot be tempted by evil. Christ's divine nature experienced no temptation. It was his human nature that was tempted. And it says Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character. And this character he offers to impart to us. All our righteousness is a filthy racks. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Sin is defined as transgression of the law. Being outside of harmony with the law, yes. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Now get this, by his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged with his will, the mind becomes one with his mind, the thoughts are brought in captivity to him, we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. How do you hear that? Seriously, how do you guys hear that? Is this just pretty language or is this something we should expect to experience right now here in our lives? A regenerating, renewing, rewiring of the neural circuitry that we come to love God and love others more and that we no longer live in a fear-based, self-preservation way. It's a process. Not by our own strength. But by a trusting, abiding in Christ, there's a supernatural work that changes us, literally. Cooperation in it. Yes. Now listen to this one. I like this. This is out of um, That I May Know Him, page 131. It says, the ethics inculcated by the gospel. What are the ethics? How many times do you hear talk about the ethics? I like this. Ethics are a system of principles. System of principles. The ethics inculcated by the gospel acknowledge no standard but the perfection of God's mind. Think that through. What are the ethics? God's mind. His will. God requires from his creatures conformity to his will. Imperfection of character is sin. How do you like that? And sin is transgression of the law. All righteous attributes of character dwell in God as as a perfect harmonious whole. Everyone who receives Christ as his personal Savior is privileged to possess these attributes. What do you, how do you hear that? Possess. When you possess something. When Christ said in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
We all know he wasn't talking cannibalism. What was he talking? Was he talking possessing him in our hearts and minds? An actual regeneration and recreation to live like him. And is our life work to be reaching forward to the perfection of Christ's character, striving constantly to the conformity of God's will? Yes? I like the word privilege used there. It's a privilege. You, you get to choose if you want to live a life of sin or not, but it's a privilege to try not to and to try and be the person that we want to be. Yes, it is. It is a privilege. We imagine you know, an HIV-infected man and woman uh, get together and have a child born HIV-infected. The child did nothing wrong, but the child has a condition which, if unremedied, will kill it. All of us are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We didn't do anything wrong to be born this way. It wasn't our choice. But we still have a condition, if unremedied, will, will kill us. And if someone comes along and offers us a remedy that will cure us, it's a privilege, isn't it? A free remedy. And Christ has provided for us free remedy. And it's a privilege to partake. I like that too. Sunday's lesson. It says, um, the fourth paragraph, talking about visiting the Galatians in the Galatian church. It was talking about some difficulties going on there. And then if you look at the bottom green section, I I wanted to read these questions from the lesson. And you'll notice if you have your lesson, I did not insert these. So I'll just read them to you. Okay? (laughs) What kind of issues are agitating your church at present? Are threats, are the threats more from without or from within? What role are you playing in these debates? How often have you stopped to question your role, your position, and your attitudes in whatever struggles you're facing? What is the kind of self-examination? Why is this kind of self-examination so important? Um, are there any issues agitating our church? Yeah. Picture of God. Picture of God. Um, you may, some of you may know, because I know I've received emails from many of you, uh, that uh, you've received a letter put out by our pastoral staff. I want to tell you that I think this, this letter is based on misunderstanding. And I think with time, uh, there's going to be opportunity for clarification. And I think that the, the concerns expressed in this letter are going to evaporate. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I'll be glad to let you see it, because most of you, I think, have already seen it. Um, but I don't think we need to get too agitated or upset about this letter, because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for communication and dialogue and expression and study. Um, and we want to take that opportunity. They, they reference in here a biblical research uh, institute article um, as a standard of orthodoxy for our church. And I thought it might be helpful to take some elements from that article and, and demonstrate, uh, and it's in the notes, by the way, the entire article. And below the sections of the article, I have copied and pasted stuff that's currently on our website and it's been there for years, just showing that our website and the article are actually in harmony. And I thought we ought to go through that because there's concern expressed that somehow there's been misunderstanding that we aren't in harmony with this article. The article was written by George Reed, former director of the BRI. And it starts, and the article is entitled, Why Did Jesus Die? How God Saves Us. And he starts out uh, talking about some of the different metaphors uh, given in Scripture about why uh, God had to die, about the sacrificial lamb, about the conquering king, and so forth. And he goes on to the, the metaphor that Christ used in Matthew twenty twenty eight that the Son of Man did not come to serve, but uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then in First um, Peter 1, it says, You know that you were ransomed from the futile, futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And they talk about this idea of ransom. And he articulates that there was this, this distorted idea in the early Christian era in which Satan had taken humanity captive, and God sent 
Christ down to pay a, a penalty, the life of Christ, to Satan. So Satan would release his captives. And then after that happened, God resurrected Christ and tricked the devil. And this was actually commonly thought in early Christian thought. And he points out that that is really kind of somewhat ridiculous, and, and we don't buy into that idea. But then he goes on to say, despite the, fancy, the, the fantasy window dressing, we discover here a nugget of truth. Christ did indeed give his life a ransom for us sinners. But the worthwhile question has little to do with who received payment. There is a far more important truth, namely, that in Christ's atonement, a monumental price was paid, not in crass commercial terms, but to accomplish reconciliation between us fallen sinners and our righteous God, to set us right with God. Now, first question. Do you think that this, this sentence, but the worthwhile question has little to do with who received payment. Do you think who received payment is irrelevancies? When we think about a ransom, what does a ransom do? It, it is the price necessary to free someone from captivity. Then if you understand to whom or how the, the ransom is paid, does that give you insight into what was holding one captive or who was holding one captive? So, in fact, if someone had your child captive and you had to pay a ransom, would you at all be concerned about who that ransom was being paid to? Yes. And so the, the, I want to go, I want to tell you, the article does a great job of describing that the ransom was not paid to Satan. It also does a, an overt, explicit job of saying the ransom was not paid to God. They're right in both counts. Ransom was not paid to Satan. Ransom was not paid to God. God did not need appeasement, it says directly in this article. And they're right. We, we've been teaching that for years, haven't we? Where did the ransom go? Great question. And so the question, we, we were held captive. Ransom is the price necessary to free one from captivity. What holds us captive? You, you got, I, heard it from, I heard it from multiple sources. Two things. Lies that Satan told which we believe that keep us from trusting God, and so you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So part of the ransom price was the truth that was necessary to be revealed, that great cost to the Godhead. That was one, but that wasn't enough. There was something else. Somebody said it. Our sinfulness. We are dead in trespass and sins. We have a carnal nature. Just seeing the truth does not free us from our carnal nature. And so Christ had to come to free us from the very thing that holds us captive, our very nature. We're dead in trespass and sin. And so he took upon himself humanity. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. What's the devil's power? Life eternal, it says in John 17, 3, is, is knowing God. So if eternal life is knowing God, then eternal death is not knowing God. Satan's power, the lies that he tells. He's the father of lies. So he destroys Satan's power by, by the truth revealed. It says in 2 Timothy 1.10 that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. What is the basis of death? After we don't know God, what happens? Let's turn it around. What's the basis of life? Knowing God and then ultimately the law of love is what he created all life to Harmony, perfect harmony is the law of love. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's the law of life. So death would come from being out of harmony with it. Our carnal nature, selfishness, self-centeredness is a principle at war with the law of love, Ellen White says. 
And this is the, the inherently within us. We were born this way. So this is why. We, so Christ came to destroy death. How did he do that? How did he destroy death? The basis. Getting resurrected was the result of his destroying death. Yes, that was the evidence and proof that death was destroyed. But on the cross, did Christ take upon himself our nature? It says in Hebrews 2.14, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And in James chapter 1.15, it says that um, we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Are both of those scriptures true? He was tempted in every way like us, and we are tempted by our desires. Did Christ have a humanity that was capable of tempting him? Yes. In Gethsemane, did Christ experience powerful human emotions? What did his emotions, if he followed his emotions in Gethsemane, what action would he have taken? And the two antagonistic powers at war, uh, Ellen White talks about these two antagonistic powers in education, page 190, when the student should learn to view the word as a whole, comparing all the various parts of the grand central theme, page 190. And she talks about these two antagonistic powers that enter in every phase of our human existence. God's law of self-sacrificing love. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for each other. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The principle of love, the principle of giving, the principle of beneficence, God's kingdom. At war with Satan's kingdom of selfishness or survival of the fittest, watching out for number one. And we are wired. I'm going to show you how deeply wired this is. Imagine your circumstance that you're out in a swimming pool and somebody holds your head underwater, trying to drown you, and you have a knife in your hand. Will you get a tremendous temptation to use that knife? Will it be powerful? Okay, Christ had temptation beyond that. And yet, every time the temptation came, Christ chose, no one can take my life. I will lay it down or give it freely. And so why is it that Christ had to die? Why did he have to die? Could He, in his humanity, destroy that infection that tempts to act in self-interest if he acted and used his power to save himself. Ellen White says at the cross, love and selfishness stood face-to-face at the cross. She says if at any point he would have acted to save himself, Satan would have triumphed. Says this in Desire of Ages. So at the cross, as death is approaching him, and you hear the temptation still. Others he saved, himself he won't save. Save yourself, come down on the cross, we'll believe you. Save yourself, save yourself. And so what did Christ do? If at any point along death's approach, he uses his power to stop death from taking him, who did he just save? And selfishness wins. He destroyed the carnal nature at the cross in his human brain. And this is why he rose on the third day, because he perfectly rewrote God's law of love back into the species human. Which, and he became, in his humanity, what God designed Adam to be in, in Eden. And thus he, di- he revealed the truth, paid the ransom price, and he paid the ultimate price to fix or, or redeem what Adam did to this race. Yes, you had a question. I understand that Christ's temptation was so much greater than ours because he had the power we could have done it, where we don't. Excellent point. That's exactly right. The two thieves were helpless up there on the cross. They couldn't do anything. Christ wasn't helpless. He wasn't even like I dream a genie who had to blink your eyes and make something happen. He could have just thought it. Be gone. And they're wiped out. I mean, think of the incredible evidence God has given us set on the cross that he doesn't even have a thought to harm his enemies. Yes? The example you just gave of being held under the water, I had an incredible visceral reaction. 
you give me a nine, it would not even be a split second that I would leave. That's right. Most of you thought that too, because being taller is a huge fear of many, many people. And then when you said it's a temptation, being tempted, I was almost a little offended. That's carnal nature. That's right. We are so wired to save self that even our government and our laws recognize that that wouldn't be a crime in that circumstance because it's natural and normal to preserve and save self. I think that him knowing that he had to do this for a purpose, that's where the difference comes. Now, now back to the example. You're being held underwater. This time it's your firstborn son high on drugs and you got the knife in your hand. What you were being held underwater, you knew that... Allowing that to happen to you would save your family. You do it. And so, perfect love casts out fear. This is exactly right. The only power in the universe that can free us and deliver us is the power of love. So when I give the example, very similar to the one you just gave, imagine walking across the street, and as you step out in the street, you see a semi bearing down on you. What, ex- what emotion do you experience? Yeah. Now you're walking along, you're with your three-year-old firstborn son, and you stop to look at some birds, and when you look back, he's toddling out into the street, and the semi is bearing down on him. There's just enough time for you to run out and shove him out of the way, but if you do, you're going to get hit. What do you do? And now as you see your toddler roll to safety in the grass, what emotion do you see as he hits the grass? Let me experience. Joy. Both experiences, you're getting hit by a truck. One, there's only fear. One, there's joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The only power in the universe to free us is the power of God's love. And these are the two antagonistic principles at war. And Christ came to do for us which we could not do for ourselves. He ultimately revealed the truth, but he did more than that. He actually overcame in our nature. Yes. I love this, but there's a, and I'm going to use a little term that I hope everybody will forgive me for, but epistemology by itself is a, is, is a bit weak in terms of the great controversy. Satan had complete access to understanding the nature of God. The universe had, had understood God very well. The assumption of the great controversy is that God's plan needs to be revealed to the unfallen worlds, or God's love, so that they won't be tempted to believe that Satan's accusations are true. But why would they have arisen in the first place? Danger, I mean, it's a mystery, as Ellen White said, a problem as to why it could arise in the first place. And then it's a problem, it seems to me, how the great controversy... Except for maybe, except for the cross, possibly, which is something perhaps transcended anything they'd ever experienced before, uh, would convince the unfallen worlds that he was wrong from the beginning. It's, it's very. What I would recommend you read is Patriarchs and Prophets, the first chapter. Yeah. Uh, Desire of Ages, um, the chapter entitled "It Is Finished." Uh, chapter seventy-nine. It is finished, and and what you're going to find in there is that. The mystery of iniquity is there's no explanation why Lucifer rebelled. But once he did, there is understanding as how he got the rest of them to rebel. They believed him. Well, what did he do? He didn't actually... Did he covet or, 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 or attempt to uh, claim equality with God the Father? No. no, his attack wasn't against the Father directly. His attack was an indirect attack. Because in heaven, as our understanding through the various inspired sources, is that prior to Christ's incarnation, how did he present himself to his creation? Michael. Michael. Yeah, no, he wasn't, an, he wasn't an angel. 
He was fully God, but he manifested himself in the form of an angel. And it says in um, Peter that he was the bright morning star. And the, and, the, and the Latin, or the Greek is phosphorus for that bright morning star. And the Latin is Lucifer. It means brightness. And so Lucifer we have here, there's a very interesting going thing going on in heaven. We have a, a, a divine being, pre-existent, uh, eternally uh, all-powerful, no, no point of time where he didn't exist, Jesus, but manifesting in the form of a covering cherub with the name Lightbearer. And we have a created being in the form of a covering cherub whose name is Lightbearer. And the created being looks over at the divine being and the divine being gets to go into certain councils that the created being can't go in. And then he becomes jealous. And he goes out and says things like, God the Father isn't fair. He, he plays favorites. And if you read uh, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, the first chapter, she says that after he started this, this subtle rebellion over God's trustworthiness, that there was a heavenly council called where all the angels were brought together and God uh, declared or, or stated Christ's true position as one equal with the Father. Well, why did he have to call the angels together and state it that he's equal with the Father? What? Yeah, the angels are all created beings. Yes, but why did he have to state Christ was equal with the Father? Why did he have to tell them this? I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite use the word disguise, but but uh, but when Christ was on earth as a human, was he so good at being human that many people failed to recognize he was the Son of God? And I would suggest he's so humble, and he's so gracious, and he's so gentle, and he's so kind, and he's so loving that many didn't recognize that he was fully equal. So God had to have a meeting and tell them. As soon as he had the meeting, Lucifer instantly spins it around and goes, now we have a ruler over us. Our freedom is being undermined. We're not free up here anymore. And, and you see this cascade of events going back and forth. Uh, if you, yes. Even the angels today have discerned. I mean, the angels have to present their gold cards in and out the gates, and it's in early life. Well, you know, I think that's pretty metaphorical language. I'm not sure they actually carry one of those. Um, but, uh, but, but actually it says in Matthew, it says in Matthew that, um, now the, ju- now is time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. I, if I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. Not all men, all unto me. And now the prince of this world will be cast out. Cast out from where? Or cast down? What was going on? And, and Ellen White says that after the cross, Lucifer's or Satan's um, activities were restricted to earth. Why were they restricted? Exactly. Because at the cross, the heavenly intelligence finally had Satan un- exposed and unmasked. And she talks about this, that, that Satan revealed himself as a murderer and a fraud by killing the Son of God. And all sympathy for him throughout the universe was lost. And so after the cross, there was not an intelligent being in the rest of the entire universe that would give Satan the time of day. He was restricted here. Not because God put a force field around earth and said you can't leave, but because no intelligent being would listen to him. Except here, we still listen. And so this is what was happening. And so the evidence was given, and we are still kind of dull. We're not quite figuring it all out yet. But it says in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, that all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Clarification. Yes. Did I just hear you say that Satan killed Christ? Ellen White says that he, that he revealed himself as a murderer and a fraud in killing the Son of God at the cross. And so it, it, the, the death of Christ had multiple factors to it. She also says in, in the chapter before in Gethsemane that in Gethsemane, when the weight of sin was pressing upon him and the separation of the Father was breaking apart, that he tasted death for every man at the cross. He fell down and 
basically died at that point. And an angel was sent to revive him because there is more yet, yet to see. So he tastes death before hands laid on him. And then we see brutal men at the instigation of Satan. And she says that at the crucifixion that, that um, de- Satan and demonic angels were in the crowd, urging the crowd on, crucify him, crucify him. Tim, yes. Wasn't it important to you that Christ created birds? Oh. So yes. No, see, there's so many elements of this. You do the whole history in the scene. So Satan alleges, Satan alleges, Lucifer alleges equality with Christ. And so what happens next? Lucifer is cast down to the earth. What was the earth like before God came to this earth and started creating? And so Genesis says it was, it was a deep black abyss that was void and nothingness was there and, and not even light. And it says in Job chapter 38 that the sons of God sang together for joy when he laid the foundations of the earth. So if you put those two texts together, is Genesis a description of creation of all life in the universe, in the entire universe, or this planet? This planet, yeah. So other things were already in existence before this planet was created. Now, the White actually says that uh, after the rebellion started in heaven, God and the sun moved forward with their plans to create earth. So I personally think that Satan was cast out to a black hole in space called Earth in the little corner of the Milky Way. And Christ said, okay, Lucifer, you claim equality with, with uh, Michael. Show us what you can do. Can't do a thing. Michael comes along because it was through Christ all things were made. and Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And Christ says, let there be light. The black hole dissipates. The light of space is traveling through. Uh, the mass at the center of the, of the uh, black hole, uh, Christ spins, in, spins into the Earth, moons, uh, stars of our solar system, Venus, Mercury, Mars, the sun. And this is why uh, scientists today can get geological radioactive dating that are billions of years old to the date of the universe because God had previously made the universe. He just came and made Earth with the materials here. So inanimate, inanimate rocks can be billions of years old. doesn't violate Genesis at all. Put the pieces together. And so God, so Jesus is showing, yes, there's a difference. Lucifer claims to be equal. He's not a creator. I'm a creator. And it's more evidence given. But then he spins that back. But yes, yeah, he's got power. He's trying to coerce you. He's trying to control you. Hey, guys, I told you uh, that if you didn't do what he said, what, what he's doing right now, he's flexing his muscles. He's trying to say, if you don't get in line, I'll, 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 I'll wipe you out. And look, I can replace you with other intelligent beings anytime. He just made two more down there. And so what does God do then? Universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence we've given. Take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. What does it say about God in the context of an assault on his throne, on his right to rule, on his trustworthiness, that instead of using power to coerce everyone to bow, get in line or else, that he instead creates the Sabbath? Why does it exist? You see, and this is why Satan hates it, the existence of the Sabbath proves God's character of love. Day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we learn God has power. Day 7, we learn God has love and leaves his creatures free. This is why the Sabbath is so powerful. This is why God says, remember me. Remember. This is why Satan hates it. He wants us to forget God's true nature and character. Wow. Good questions, guys. Um, and I just want to give a couple of high points from this article and show that, that, that basically everything it says that we're in harmony with it says right here, Christ died to accomplish reconciliation between us fallen sinners and our righteous God, to set us right with God. Have we ever taught anything other than that here? The purpose of Christ's death was to restore us to unity with God. That's exactly right. That's what it says. I'm not going to read all the things I wrote. They're in here. It's in the, it's in the uh, article, um, in the notes, I mean. It talks about love as a principle, Ellen White says. This is from the article. How can that be? The answer is that God's love is an unshakable commitment, invo- inviolable, uh, a 
predisposition in our favor that cannot be discouraged. Divine love, there uh, is no way to shake it or deter it. It is relentless pursuit of God, eager to help, one who never gives up. In this sense, God is love. Do we disagree with that? No, and I've got the uh, the statements in here to, to support that. What about this? The focus falls especially on our inward moral enlightenment. Not so talking about, by the way, the, the main attack on this article, the thing that's really trying to destroy is the moral influence theory. That's what it's against. It's against moral influence theory. And this is why I think there's a big misunderstanding because the people who suggest that, that maybe we're not you know, quite orthodox, uh, they're suggesting we teach moral influence theory, which we also have shown its weaknesses. It says... Um, it says that, so not much on a plain and open outward death that resolves the major conflict sin has introduced into God's universe. What is the major conflict sin has introduced into God's universe? What is it? How would you describe it? Somebody asks you, what's the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? Okay. She says believing lies about God's character. Anybody else? Selfishness. And I think those are the two, the two big ones. You already nailed them. Lies and selfishness. Those are it, yes. Those are things that separate us from God. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And this is it good. Um, so it goes on to say, it means a grueling confrontation between righteousness and human revolt that entangles us all. It means a love that carried Jesus to the ultimate sacrifice to obtain for us reconciliation with our Creator. Now, I may describe it in different words, but am I not describing that Jesus came to reconcile us or put us back into unity and harmony with God? Yes. Yeah. There's another view, and in fact, some of you may know the history. Um, the um, Bible commentary, the Adventist Church, the Book of Romans uh, Bible commentary, if you've got it, was written by Graham Maxwell. And Graham uh, will tell you that, uh, that in the Book of Romans that he wrote, the commentary on. And also in Corinthians, somebody went, after the final versions were edited, as it was on its way to publication and press, somebody edited and, and changed uh, two places, both in Corinthians and in Romans, that he wrote, um, where they put in there that reconciliation means God being reconciled to man and man being reconciled to God. That is not what Graham wrote. It's not what the, um, I think it was, was it Heppenstall that did Corinthians? Um, and it wasn't what he wrote either. They inserted that. And so there's this other idea that reconciliation means God being reconciled to us. In other words, something being done to God to change him so that he would be favorable to us. But that's not what this BRI article says. It says that it was to reconcile man to God, not God to man. And, of course, that's our position as well. Since the basis of God is the constancy of unselfish love, Exactly right. It can't be. And so it's, 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 based on, it's based on misunderstanding. It's based on misunderstanding of God, his character. Now, I think it ultimately comes down, you've heard me say this in here before, that I think the real root of the difficulty ultimately stems from misunderstanding God's character, which immediately, stepping off point, is misunderstanding God's law. Because the law is an expression of his character. And there's two ways to understand God's law, generally. One... God's law emanates from his character. He is love. The law is the design template. When the God of love began to go and create, he created everything to be in perfect harmony with his own character of love. So the very structure of the universe, the very uh, principles upon which life is built to operate are all built upon the, the, the very character of God, his law of love. That's one way to understand it. Another way to understand it is that God created, and then after he created, he as the great governor of the universe began imposing laws or rules upon his creatures that they had to abide by. In this view, if you breach the principles upon which life is based, 
the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. He who sows the carnal nature from the nature reaps destruction. That it's out of harmony with life, and the only consequence without remedy is death. Over here, it's, well, uh, God is holy, and he is just, and if you break the rules that he's uh, put upon the universe, then in order for him to maintain his sovereignty and his holiness and his justice, he has to use his power to inflict penalties upon And so now we have, if that's the problem, over here, then Christ has to come to remedy the situation. He has to come to reveal truth, to win us to trust. He has to come to actually reverse the damage sin has done, to develop a perfect character. As Ellen White says in Zion of Ages 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man is not to give, but Christ came in the form of man, developed the perfect character, and this he offers as a free gift to all who will accept him. So... Um, in this model, Christ is coming to actually destroy the carnal nature and perfectly restore the law of love and humanity. He becomes the conduit through which God's love is again expressed in humanity. And all those who unite with him, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has, has done and reproduces it in us as we've read. In this model, the problem is God's holiness and wrath has been offended. He's angry. He, his justice, his, 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 uh, the principles of his government that he's outlined are, are, are inviolent. We're in rebellion. And so in order to be just, he has to inflict penalties. Christ came to pay the penalty. And the penalty, now, the, the BRI Institute didn't answer who got the penalty paid to, but it does very nicely say it wasn't paid to God. And, and what happens as a stand-in, and it, and it happened recently with some very, very respected people in this community that I respect, um, when I said uh, they didn't pay it to God, they instantly said, no, he paid it to the law. That's what they said. He paid it to the law. And I said, and where does the law originate? And they said, well, in God. And so you have this, and it comes because you can see the law as a doctor sees the laws of health, or you can see the law as a lawyer sees legislated and enacted laws. Legislated and enacted laws require impositions of penalties. Natural law has its own inherent penalty if unremedied. And so these are the real diverging points of two systems of theology and two, and two ways of seeing God's universe and two ways of understanding what Christ came to do. If it wasn't yes. paid to law, and if it wasn't paid to God, if it wasn't paid to Satan, who was it paid to? Yeah, great question. And see, we can use language like this. If you're dying, you dying because you're in renal failure, you're in renal failure, your kidneys are shut down, and somebody loves you and they want to save you, what's the price necessary to save you? Would be a new kidney. And so your brother donates his kidney. You could say your brother paid a high price. It cost him a lot. That language would be appropriate. Does it mean, though, that he paid a price to the hospital administrator to get the hospital administrator to be willing to allow you to have the surgery so that you can be healed? That too, possibly. (laughs) In our society, yes. but, But the kidney wouldn't be for that. That's not really the biggest cost, is it? No, it's a much bigger cost to give your kidney than it is to give money. Isn't that true? Yes. And what Christ gave was his life. And why did he give it? Because it was the only means possible to actually fix humanity. Understand this. Get this very clearly. God can always create new creation. He can create all kinds of new creatures. But the human species, we are all descended from Adam. Understand what that means. Once Adam sinned, every one of us are an extension from Adam. The only way to heal this species is to become one with the species. He can create a new species if he wants, but that's not this species. And he wanted to heal humanity. And that's why he became one with us. For all eternity, he's one with us. And so in the person, in the human brain of Jesus Christ, the human species is perfected. 
and now all of us who are, he's the vine, we're the branches who connect with him, receive from him what he's achieved, and we become reproduced in his image. Yes? To me, the idea that Christ gave his life means his life comes into me, and I am now partaker of the divine nature. Yes, that's what Peter said. We become partakers of the divine nature. It's actually literal. The law is written on the heart and mind. It is literal. We are. This is what I read in the Christ Object Lessons. When God looks upon us and he sees in us the perfection of his son. This is what it means to be covered with his robe of righteousness. It's not a covering that covers over. It's a covering that regenerates and reproduces within. Yeah. Yes. Going back to the uh, kidneys. It may be the only way to save that person. But it's not a guaranteed save. There are risks involved. And... Well, you see, and let's, let's just see the difference there, though. Those who accept what Christ has done, it is 100% guaranteed for. The only reason some won't have it is not because the remedy he provided is ineffective or insufficient. It's because they won't allow it to be applied and accepted into their heart and mind. Well, this is what I say with my patients. Um, if when it comes to some of the heart and, and spiritual struggles that my patients have, there are many few hundred percent guarantees. But there is a hundred percent guarantee that when Christ comes into the heart, you can have a new heart and right spirit. That's a hundred percent. I guess we have to close. There's more in the notes, and if we have questions afterwards, we'll be glad to stay afterwards. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've had this opportunity to study. Lord, our goal is to experience your presence in our heart and mind. We want the Spirit Temple to be filled with your glory. We want to leave this place with the law love written in our minds. Give us the wisdom to go out and share this truth. And Lord, this week, uh, these, these unfolding weeks and what we've been through this last couple of weeks, thank you for the opportunities for us to practice grace and patience and love and kindness. Let us continue to practice those because as we do so, it's, it's cooperating with you for the healing and regenerating of a people that look like you. Uh, move your spirit upon this community. Soften hearts. Uh, allow minds that have, have uh, had misunderstanding to, to be open to, for conversation so that areas can be clarified and we can have reconciliation in the body of Christ. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.